You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Thank you for being seated. Preaching is always like, like a first date for me. It's like, I don't know how to act. <laughs> I don't know exactly what to say. I pray that words come out in some normal semblance of order that doesn't cause problems. <laughs> and I'm trusting God right now for that to happen. Um, it, it's interesting as we've been going through Ephesians, um, we had one Sunday where Sean preached on two words. And last week, Logan had two sentence, or two verses. And, and I was a little comforted when I realized that this week I got two sentences. They just happened to be nine verses. <laughs> and so there is a lot in here. And I'm going to try to keep myself focused so we can get through that. And if you would with me once again before we start, can we please pray? God, the truth of your word is so rich and so full and beyond our comprehension. And in these passages, Lord, there is a ton to point our hearts to you. Um, I just trust that that would be what happens today the truth of your word would penetrate our hearts and affect your desired results and purposes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm guessing most of your Bibles have this passage titled Thanksgiving and Prayer or Prayer and Revelation or God's Prayer for the Ephesians. And that is exactly what's going on here. Paul is praying for the Ephesian believers. And it's interesting. He doesn't just pray for God to bless them, to bless the elders and bless the deacons and bless the members. And he doesn't pray that they would be successful or have plenty of money or that they wouldn't have problems. He actually prays that God would give them two related things with one outcome. And his desired prayer, his purpose in the prayer for those two things is that the Ephesians would know three specific things as a result. That's what we're going to be focusing on as we come through today. The two related things with one outcome, and then the three specific purposes that Paul has. And this doesn't get easy right off the bat, because the first thing Paul says is wherefore. Which means we're looking back at what's gone on prior to this. And he looks back to verses 3 to 14, essentially the whole of chapter 1 up to this point, but especially verses 13 and 14. He also then goes on and restates this reason in verse 15. So it's forward and backward. But here's the, the, essentially the same reason in both passages. Why does Paul give thanks? Well, let's look at verses 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, 
who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Paul gives thanks because he knows that the Ephesians have believed in Christ. And because of that, they have the guarantee of the Holy Spirit. He's residing within them. Paul knows that they're kept until their final redemption and ours of this inheritance that they've been promised. So that's a great reason to give thanks. He's sure that these Ephesian believers are secure in their relationship with Christ and their inheritance is guaranteed. He restates that in verse 15. He tells them, I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. If we think about Ephesians, we actually read quite a bit about this when we were in the book of Acts. Um, in chapter 18 of Acts, verses 19 to 21, we see Paul and Aquila and Priscilla coming to Ephesus, and Paul leaves them there, and they spend time ministering. In addition, in chapter 19, chapters 19 and 20, we see Paul spending time in Ephesus also. He's there with them, watching what's going on in their lives. Uh, perhaps as much as three years while he was there. And then if we look at, at Acts chapter 20, Paul is on his way to Rome. And he knows he's not coming back. And on the way, he stops to visit the Ephesian believers. And we, we see as we look at his interaction with them at, towards the end of the chapter, uh, in verse 31, Paul says, Be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things I have shown shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. There was much, much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrow, sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that he would not, they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. There's deep affection here and deep longing. And it's, it's totally natural that Paul would be giving praise as he looks at the faith of these believers who he's watched their life, spiritual life, grow and develop over this time. We have an important point here, too, as we talk about their faith in Christ. The Ephesians had been worshipers of Diana. They were devoted to her deity, if you will. In fact, so much so that when they quit following Diana and turned to Christ, Demetrius, one of the silversmiths, was deeply appalled on religious basis, but mostly because he was losing a lot of money because they were no longer coming to him for their statues and shrines, and so it made a huge point. 
Also, if we look at the, the end of, or the middle of chapter 19 of Acts, uh, in verse 19, we see that along with worshiping Diana, these Ephesians practiced magic arts. They were into sorcery and witchcraft, um, kind of like our new age right now. But they, it says that they brought their books together and they burned them in the sight of all. This was a big deal. They counted the value of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. The point of all these things is that the faith of the Ephesian believers was real. Their relationship with Christ was solid and established. And because of that, Paul was rejoicing. But he's rejoicing for more than just their faith. He's rejoicing because of their love, because their love's an outward evidence of their conversion. The love that he's talking about here isn't just good feelings. It's that agape love that Sean was talking about earlier in chapter 1. That love that's, that we know is self-sacrificial. That love that we know is a part of God's heart as he loves us. His love for us was sacrificial. I know we hate to think this, but he had nothing to gain from us. We had everything to gain because of what he did for us. And so Paul, as we can see, he talked about the fact that he left them an example of how to live, how to show this love, how to care for others, how to work hard and use those resources for God's glory and the benefit of others. And there's evidence here that that's exactly what they were doing because, because Paul is rejoicing in that. We can see their affection and care for Paul as they send him off, even as we looked in chapter 20. So these are the reasons that Paul is praying for them. He's praying for them because he knows of their faith and he knows of their love, the reality of their relationship with Christ. Because of those things, for this reason, he says in verse 16, he gives incessant thanks for the Ephesian believers. I don't think he was praying 24-7. Every word out of his mouth, I don't think, was a prayer for the Ephesians. He had a few other things on his mind. But I do believe it means that Paul consistently, as he prayed, prayed for them. As I think about that, I think about this body of believers here. And I know that I give thanks for this body. I thank God for the blessing you are in my family's life, for the way you interact and care for us, for the way I know that you pray for us. Um, I rejoice and I give thanks to God because of you. I'm truly grateful for what we have here. Uh, you are definitely a part of our faith lives. And so I can see how Paul was interacting with the Ephesians. They were on his heart, and he did pray for them. He goes on to say that Paul remembers, in verse 16, or makes mention of the Ephesians. They're on his prayer list, his prayer journal, however you want to put it, on the, the scroll, because it wasn't a book. Paul was praying and thanking God for these Ephesians. We sit and go, wow, 
while the Apostle Paul was praying for these guys. That would have been awesome. Oh, wait a minute. Shelby, could you put up the picture for a minute? This is my friend John and his wife Sue in a candid moment. <laughs> we got to stop and visit with them last summer. I haven't seen John much for a long time. They moved to Boise when our children were all small. John's one of the elders at the church that we were at in Boise. Just after my first wife died, we were visiting them. And John said, how can I pray for you? He said, I need to update my prayer journal. He said, I want you to know, I pray for your family all the time. And when we saw them this last summer, John asked me, how can I pray for you? And he shared some of the things that he's been praying weekly for 10 years just for me. And I know I'm not the only one on his prayer list. This is a faithful man seeking God's interaction on our behalf in our lives. That's a huge testimony to me. He's a living Apostle Paul in my life. He's praying for a new set of things for me. Hopefully not for the next 10 years. We'll get some answers quicker than those this time, but we get to rejoice over those. And the cool thing is, is there's a couple of things I get to pray for him also. There's something else. Grab your phone and go to your text messages real fast. It's okay. Just pull up your text messages. Look up 94000. Should show up. Tuesday. Truth for today. Here's a verse I love and can bring you comfort. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. 1 Peter 5, 7. If I can pray for you in any way, please do not hesitate to respond to this text and let me know. Love you all. Sean. I want to take a minute and say, wow. We've got a pastor that cares about our spiritual lives and our hearts. He rejoices in the spiritual triumphs that God brings in our life, and he comes alongside us in the challenging times. Apostle Paul got nothing on us. He was a man being faithful to God. We need to remember that. And God used him. We're being cared for in the same way, and I think we should be able to rejoice in that as well. I'm grateful for my friend John and my friend and brother Sean who pray for me with the same heart as Paul was praying for the Ephesians. What a, what a blessing. So let's move on into the prayer. Here's who Paul is praying to in verse 17. He's praying to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a lot in there. We're going to come back to look at that in just a second. But would you go back to verse 2 with me for a minute? Because as Paul is introducing his letter, he talks to the Ephesians and he says, Grace to you and peace 
from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. This God, who Paul refers to here as the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, he also refers to as our Father. We have the same Father God as the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, Paul tells us who this Lord Jesus Christ is. The first thing our Lord talks about is he is our Lord. We have a relationship with the God of the universe. It's personal and part of our lives. His name, Jesus, tells us that he's the Savior. Those things combined into a phrase that was used in the early church as an affirmation of who Christ is, Jesus our Lord. It, it talks about his right to rule in our lives and closes with his title of Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the one that God promised to bring life and hope and peace. And then he calls him the Father of Glory. All that God the Father has done for us in Christ all those things that were stated in chapter 1. Along with raising Jesus from the dead. So all the things that he's done show his character. The character that God the Father displayed in resurrection and salvation. Make him worthy to receive glory. We should lift up his name as Paul is doing here in his prayer. So... Praying to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. Paul presents in verses 17 and 18 his two-part request. So here's what he asks. He asks for the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of revelation and the knowledge of him. That wisdom is good judgment, experience, and the revelation is showing his appearing, disclosing it to us. Now, we know because of what we've read before in chapter 1 that the, these believers have the Holy Spirit. So if Paul's asking God to give them the spirit of wisdom and of revelation, he's not asking God to give them the Holy Spirit that they already have. But he's asking them because of the Holy Spirit who already resides in them to give them this sense of good judgment, of the sense of the appearing of full discernment of the knowledge of him. It's not just intellectually attained. Understanding God comes from him revealing himself to us. And Paul is praying that that's exactly what God would do for these Ephesian believers, that they would know, fully discern, and recognize God as he reveals himself. Why? Verse 18, that they would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened. That's a weird phrase. Uh, my cardiologist didn't tell me anything about the eyes on my heart when they put my stent in. I didn't get any information back on that on the scope. 
And we all know that he's not even talking about our physical heart here. We get that. But he's talking about the seed of our understanding, our very core of our being. And his desire is that we would have vision at the very core of our being from him, that he would give illumination to us to understand who he is and what he's doing. Paul knows that real spiritual understanding comes from God. And that was his prayer for those Ephesian believers. He didn't pray for riches. He prayed for clear, full spiritual understanding of what their relationship with God meant. They, he prayed that they would have true understanding. And that takes us to the three specific things that Paul wanted the believers to know. The first one is the hope to which he has called you. The second is the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And the third is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. As I was preparing this, I wish Paul had shown us exactly what he's talking about there, because then I wouldn't have had to look in Scripture so many other places. But we're going to do that. What is this hope to which we are called? It's an eager expectation. It's an anticipation. So there should be something that we as believers are looking forward to. What is that? That's a lot of things. Please turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 24. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But we hope for what we do not see, we wait in patience. And back in verse 23, he tells us what we're hoping for, the redemption of our bodies. There's a hope. We're going to be redeemed. We're going to be transformed. We're going to become new. That didn't used to mean much to me. <laughs> it's becoming more and more precious each year as more things creak and groan and don't function smoothly. I'm looking forward to the promise that I have of a redeemed body. Romans chapter 15, verse 13. And remember, we're looking at things related to this hope that we have, that we understand it more fully. Hmm, sorry, new Bible, stiff pages. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Part of our hope is being filled with joy and peace in believing. We have that promised to us. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 19. This was kind of like a treasure hunt as I started going through these. 
He, Paul ends up, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And what he's talking about here is the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead, and as he is raised from the dead, so will we be. So we have hope in the resurrection. Another thing to eagerly look forward to. Colossians 1.27, which I believe is what Ryan read to us earlier. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's like the apex of the hope, Christ in us. It's incomprehensible. We've been made new in him. 1 Thessalonians 1.3 also tells us the hope that we have in Christ. Remember before our God and Father, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. We are in him. We have salvation. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 8 to 10. It talks of our salvation and guarding our hearts and minds. Whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you brothers to do this more and more. Salvation shows us, I think I picked the wrong passage, but that's all right. And Titus chapter one, verse two. He's talking about the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. So another part of the hope is eternal life. So let me summarize that list of things. We have hope in redeemed bodies. We have joy and peace in our hope. We have hope because of the resurrection. We have hope because of Christ in us and us in him. We have the hope of salvation which guards our minds and we have hope of eternal life. That's the first thing that Paul wants us to know as believers, the depth of the hope that we have because of what he accomplished at Calvary. The second thing is the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Back to Romans chapter 8. Verses 14 to 17, we read, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, 
provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Wow. We are made sons of God and joint heirs with Christ. That is incomprehensible. That wicked sinners should inherit glorious heavenly joys. And that's what happened in Christ. That's part of our inheritance. Galatians 4, 4 to 7 says the same thing as we just read in Romans. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 2, that our hearts would be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He wants us to have full assurance of the mystery of Christ in us. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, talking about husbands and wives. But it says that we are heirs together of the grace of life. And he calls husbands to live with our wives in an understanding way and show honor so that our prayers not be hindered. But part of the riches of our inheritance is that we are heirs of the grace of life. We've been translated from death to life by God's incredible graciousness. So, another summary. We're God's adopted children. That's part of our riches. We have full rights and privileges. I don't know what that looks like, but I know it's true. I know that we are going to reign with Christ. I don't know what that's gonna look like, but I know it's true. Paul's rejoicing because he knows these things are true of these Ephesian believers as well. And now, Paul goes to the third part, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. He starts in verse 19 to show us what this power is. So I'm grateful. This one is clarified here. We don't have to go to another passage. He explains this immeasurable greatness of his power. Verses 19 and 20. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. When he raised Christ from the dead, God showed his might. We take that for granted a lot. But Jesus rose from the dead. He was given eternal life. We're given eternal life because of what he did. Have you ever tried God things? Like, 
Have you ever tried to speak things into existence? I am weird. I have. <laughs> and, and I guarantee you it didn't work. Nothing happened. <laughs> so you can rest assured, I came to the conclusion a long time ago, I'm not God. But he can do that and has done that. I used to work building houses, and one time I wanted to see what the crucifixion was life like, and we didn't have rafters on yet. We just had top plates, and so I grabbed the top plates of the roof standing on a ladder, and I tried to take a step down, and I thought my arms were going to come out of the sockets. I didn't even get my full weight on my arms. I was still halfway on the step, and, and as I processed that, and I realized what Christ endured on the cross to provide our salvation, I was humbled and awed at the depth of what he did for us. We can see God's power is greater than anything we can comprehend. And the ultimate display of that power isn't in the creation of the universe. It's in the resurrection. And Paul wanted these believers to know that. Not only is he raised from the dead, but he's seated at God's right hand, the place of authority and power. And we're told in verse 21 that in seating Christ at his right hand, God has elevated, raised Jesus far above all rule, all authority, all power, and all dominion. So I looked up all just to, to check. And that's what it means. All. Every rule that has ever existed, Jesus is far above. Every authority that is or was or will be, Jesus is above. Any power that exists, Jesus is above. Any dominion, anything seeking control, Jesus is above. And he's above every name that is named in this age and in the age to come. God's power is so great that there is none greater than our Lord Jesus Christ. Ever, ever, ever. And that's the hope that these Ephesian believers are to have that Paul wants to remind them of because they are in Christ. The huge blessings that he's provided. That's what we've been made heirs of. And that moves me to humility because I know that I don't deserve any of that. And yet God's bestowed that on us in Christ. Well, there's the first sentence. Let's look at the last sentence, verses 22 and 23. God has put all things under his feet, Christ's, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. All things are subjected to Christ. All things are placed under his feet. He truly is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he gave Christ, as he says here, as head of all things to the church. 
There's that all again, and that's what it means. All things to the church. We know that the head moves the body. The head empowers, the head enables. Christ is the head of all things. We know that he is our life, our strength. We know that we find our being in him and our purpose, which makes verse 23 mind-boggling. We're told that the church is Christ's body, and we understand that. And then we're told that the church is the fullness of Christ. And Christ is the one who fills all in all. Fullness is the thing that completes something or to abundantly fill something. Not just here's some, but that the verse packed down, heaped up, good measure running over. That's the picture of fullness. The church is the fullness of Christ. I just went, whoa. We fill him. And the, the fill is the, the root of fullness, but it says that Christ is the one who fills all in all. And, and fills is more than just abundantly filled here. Fills is crammed full. Like, okay, if you take a sleeping bag and you try to put it in a stuff, stuff sack, how many of you have done that? It's hard work to get all that sleeping bag in that little bag. Or the bowl that you get at Who Hot. You fill it. You don't just level off a little bit. You fill it. Some of you take two bowls. I get it. Or it's the picture of putting 17 people in a Chevy Corvair. Don't ask. You can ask later. That's crammed full. And that's the picture of how Christ fills all in all. It's not a little bit. It's not leveled off. It's not just enough to get by. Christ is the one who fills all in all. He is the fullness of the church, and the church is the fullness of Christ. That boggles my mind. That relationship that we have been brought into. And all I can do, honestly, as I sit and think about that without going in circles, is glorify God, which is the whole point. Paul wanted the Ephesians to stop and think about all that they had in Christ. The greatness of that, those three things. The hope that they're called to, the riches of their inheritance, and his immeasurable greatness and power toward us. As a result of this passage, as we look at what was done for the Ephesians and we know God has done for us, we should bring glory to God. Honor him for all that he's done for us, for his love for us, and for all that we have in Christ. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.